Most of us are used to symbols, we're used to logos, we're used to all the things that maybe you use in marketing your business, or if you're wearing UT garb today, or whatever high school you go to, we understand uh, that you can see one little thing, and that kind of reminds you. I have a friend who just moved from Boston, Massachusetts, all the way down to right outside Birmingham, Alabama, and it's the funniest thing to watch this guy make that transition, and he said, how do, what, what do I, he said, college seems to be quite popular in the South. And I said, yeah, we play a little football. <laughs> we, uh, and he said, well, which team should I uh, pull for? And he listed two or three. And I said, well, as badly as I hate to say this, I, you're probably going to have to pull for Alabama because that's where you are and you're close there. And he said, well, how do you do that? And I said, well, when you're in the airport or you're in a cafe or deli or somewhere and you see somebody and they wear the A that's not the Atlanta Braves A, it has the seraphs on it, you say, roll tide. And I said, they will understand. He said, and that's all I say, what does that mean? And I said, well, it doesn't matter what it means. It's the, <laughs> it's the symbol. I said, it means something awful. But I said, uh, just say that and they will nod or smile. Or I said, when you get some clothes and wear that, I said, when you see somebody in orange with a, with a power T up there, you say, go Vols. And I said, you can be anywhere in the world. I said, I've been to other countries and seen that, and people go, go Vols right back at you. I said, that's how it's done. Because that's symbolism. And we understand that. Early Christians understood that as well. The early church used symbols to designate their faith in Christianity itself and to help spread the news and sometimes, even in covert ways, these symbols came to mean a lot. Probably the most familiar is uh, Ichthus, you know, this fish. It's been parodied. It's been copied. Some of you have it maybe on a bumper sticker or a license plate or a coffee mug or a t-shirt or something. It's, it's this fish... And inside that, sometimes, uh, typically, you recognize just the fish by itself, uh, that symbol, Jesus. But the, but the Greek letters are lined up here, so it's kind of like an acronym, uh, Jesus Christ, God, Son, Savior. It's kind of what that spells out. It just wraps that up in one thing. Um, in ancient times, Christians would even use this symbol. They would scratch it on the side of a wall or in the dirt uh, or even on a tree. And the direction that fish was pointing is the direction that you would keep moving. You would walk that way until you see another one. And it was this quiet, subtle guide to maybe a place of worship or a place of baptism to try to kind of fly under the radar of persecution. Uh, sometimes other Christians would be able to identify one another simply by drawing that fish in the dust. Another symbol that's probably not as familiar, but one you might recognize, is this. Uh, and there are several, but I chose this because it's probably the most prominent after that. And you see the cross uh, there, a symmetrical cross, and on the four points of the cross are these initials from left to right. You see what looks like uh, in English an IC, that's a Greek letters. Uh, for the first and the last letters of the name Jesus. Uh, Jesus. And, and XC, you see that up there. Um, the letters 
for the word Christos. And then below that, uh, the N-I-K-A, and uh, that's separated. Uh, but together, that uh, has the meaning of the word victor, conqueror, the winner in a, in a battle. And this symbol emphasized Jesus Christ as the victor. Jesus is the resurrected Lord and King. These early Christian symbols were written on catacombs and even tattooed on bodies. Coptic Christians even today will tattoo a small cross in a very similar way on the inside of their wrist. And if you go to Egypt and you see that doing business or visiting with someone, you'll know because that's a sign of identification with this. So these early Christian symbols represent truth, but they represent identity. And they identified Jesus as the conqueror. But the question is, what did he conquer? How and in what context is Jesus the victor? Well, the Greek words for victory or conquer, and you have to get past my southern accent. I've tried to work on that this week so you could understand when I say that word. He conquered. I could just say it that. When I moved here, uh, I made the mistake of saying, you know, the community that's pretty far west of here, I call that conquered. And finally, people said, do you mean Concord? I said, yeah. I said, is that anywhere close to Maryville? And they said, no town around here called Maryville. You must mean Marvel. Well, the Greek words... <laughs> For conquer is and to overcome. It really all comes from the same family. Uh, Nika or Nike, which is probably familiar. Maybe you're wearing a pair of Nikes. Guess where that came from? Uh, Nikao. Uh, all of this, uh, it, it, it's together. It paints a picture of receiving victory. Much like an, an army would uh, in battle or after battle. Did you know that even the fact that from the cross, when Jesus cried out, it is finished. That to us, it's a standalone statement and it makes sense. But in that day and in that context, it would be even more relevant because that was a common cry of victory towards the end or at the end of a battle. Where a commander could see that we've won this uh, this war, this conflict, and say they would blow the trumpets and they would wave the flags and they would give this cry, it is finished, which meant we've won. We are victorious. Jesus cried out from the cross, this familiar, well-known military expression for victory after a battle, because he was victorious. Most notable use, I think, in my, in my imagination, as I've thought about this, uh, of the word overcome, you know, when he, which, which has the same root word. It mean, means the same. And Jesus, this final conversation he had um, before his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I rethought this after our um, Good Friday service where there was a dramatic 
kind of a portrayal of, of this moment as well as a crucifixion. And, and I think it was the most beautiful and touching Good Friday service we've ever had. And I've been here a long time uh, at this church. And it, and it made me rethink this, this word. Jesus said, I know, I know you're going to go through difficulties. But I'm leaving you with peace. When he reappeared to them, the first words out of his mouth were peace. First word, peace be to you. It's a unique peace. It's a, it's a deeper, fuller meaning uh, than maybe we would think of. But he says, I know even better than they knew, you're facing pain, you're facing rejection and persecution simply for believing in me. Let me tell you, show you what he said in John 16, 33, however. He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. I am victorious over the world. And the word world, you know, I, I know maybe we think of just something geographical or the planet, you know, this place where we live called Earth. But it really is, it's a word cosmos, which uh, is a definition in the context of the, of the word world within the way John would say it here is really defined by a life that is apart from and contrary uh, to God. It, it's, it's a life that's really ruled by Satan, where you're on the throne of your life. And, and it involves all the people who are not part of the family of God through faith in Jesus. The world, this, this opposing system. Other passages talk about the victory of Jesus and declare that this is... The Equally amazing, I think, especially for me, is that for those of us who believe in Jesus, we participate in his victory. We participate and we are conquerors as well. Anybody watch the uh, Loyola uh, Michigan game last night? A few, did you see? And, and I, don't, I know it was obvious who the whole world was, was pulling for. Uh, and, and the players cried, you know, and, and I, I saw, you probably saw in the last 13, 15 seconds of the game, the coach just pull all the starters off, pulls the first string out, and he puts in these guys, he puts in these players who are freshmen and sophomores, maybe they hadn't gotten to play, so they would get to say, yeah, I, yeah, I played, yeah, I was in Final Four, I played in college, yeah, I was, I was in that game, I actually played in the game, they played for 10 seconds, but they, they got to be... That's, you know, I, I, I have memories of that. Um, you get to be there. But they share the defeat or they share the victory. And not only the people who played, but the people on the bench. And not only them, but all of the crowd. All of the fans. Isn't it funny how when you know, UT's having a good season or uh, somebody stopped me yesterday. I used to pull for the Braves. I, I'm, I'm in purgatory. I don't know what to do right now. But somebody uh, it goes, Daniel, our youth minister, yesterday at the egg hunt, he said, hey, I, I saw y'all pulled off a you know, walk-off home run there in the end, and you won. 
I'm in Knoxville. I don't play for the Atlanta Braves. I, I've got a jersey or two, but, but you see how we're incorporated into that as participants in a bigger, deeper, stronger, more profound way. We participate in the victory that Jesus won on the cross. When we die to ourselves and our sins and our flesh and, and we adopt, we are adopted into his family, we become victorious. We are overcomers in him. It's your victory. Isn't that a beautiful thing? First John 5, 4 says, everyone born of God overcomes the world. Why? Because you're reborn. You're reset. It's a restart. On Easter, I celebrate resurrection. I celebrate the fact that roughly 2,000 years ago, Jesus rose from the dead. That's a big statement of faith. In fact, that one statement, I think, is the tipping point. That's the, that's the division. That's what matters. That's what's crucial. When I first began that journey, I, I was kind of skeptical. And I even talked to my friends, and I would bring up the other side. Well, what about this? And how come you guys never talk about that? And I don't understand where you get this. And, and I, I wasn't antagonistic, but I wasn't exactly sympathetic either. I just wanted to know. I think, is there anything objective? Is there evidence and there is. And I haven't done this in several years, but I just want to share with you some of the evidences for me personally that, that grew my trust and helped me to step forward. There's one in particular, and maybe for you it's something else. But at the end of the day, it's, it's not something I'm ever going to convince you happened. The validity, the, the authenticity of that event... If I stack up all the facts, if I present an airtight case, that's probably not going to sway you because at the end of the day, this is about your faith. You've got to have faith in something. It's going to be in yourself or your resources or science. It's going to be in Scripture. It's going to be in Jesus. Make no mistake, it's not just empirical. It's not just an intellectual process. I don't think anything ever is, do you? So the evidence that I give you may not be complete or satisfying, especially to every skeptic, but hopefully it'll raise the question, and it'll make you curious if you're a person who has an open mind and an open heart. So whether you've walked into the room thinking, I'm here because Meemaw wanted me to come and it's Easter, I get that. This was the day growing up that I typically came to church uh, on Easter and Mother's Day. Uh, because, and it would be at my grandmother's church typically. And I'd wear those itchy wool pants and that little clip-on tie and the whole deal. So I, I don't know why you're, you're here. Maybe you're in that place in a sense. Or maybe you're neutral and you think, you know what? Dan, I'm really not against, I just, I don't know, I just don't think about it so much. 
Or maybe you're a believer. Maybe you have been for a year or for 10 years or for 50 years. I, I, I don't know. But I know that the, the moment where we are in history and how we move forward, and, and I, I totally understand that every preacher from 2,000 years ago to now has thought, oh, we're the generation. This is it. Jesus is just about to come because it's never been this bad and technology has never shown us. And, and I understand when I say that, and in 10 years now, you're going to go, yeah, he said it in his generation, and I will say it in my generation, and I will not apologize but I do believe we're moving forward in a, in a unique way because we're disconnected. Um, even if I were a non-believer, say there were 10 things that linked me uh, between atheism and faith in Jesus. Let's say there were just 10 steps. We'd already come five because society and culture leaned that way. We, we sort of, particularly those of you from America, we just kind of inherited that. But I see that. You've got to see that, right? That that's diminishing. It's like a four and a three, and we're just becoming a more secular society. And this is not wired in the way it was at one time. So you will need information to get a spiritual conversation started or to move forward or to call some of your coworkers or classmates or, or friends or neighbors to at least think about this. It worked with me, particularly one of these. So first of all, without the physical resurrection, 2,000 years of history kind of beg for an explanation. I mean, without the resurrection, it's like a movie that misses a key scene. You ever go to a movie and you need to walk out for some reason? And you think, I can't sit here anymore. I'm going to have to cut. And so you try to pick. What do you try to pick? A moment in the movie where nothing's happening or the least amount. And you, don't wanna, and you come back and you sit down and, and, you, and you maybe lean over to, to whoever you're at the movie unless you're you know, by yourself there. And I'm so sorry. Um, uh, been there, done that. And, and, you know, and, and there's no one to ask unless you tap a total stranger and say, what did I miss? Oh, you just, the main character just got shot. That's all. That's all. I mean, you may have missed something. Without the resurrection... This flow of history, there's this key part, there's this scene that, that's missing. There is, and I know I'm, I'm making statements that are going to sound like over the top, if, but check it out, I'll stand by it. There is no event in all of recorded history that has so reached so far across national, ethnic, religious, linguistic, cultural, political, geographic borders. Think about that. There's nothing else that's ever happened that no matter where you're from, what your background or history is, that we all relate to. Even through time, it's just as relevant today as it was then. So how did this small band, this ragtag group of disempowered Jews in an occupied and insignificant territory of ancient Rome accomplish something so amazing. What happened so that many generations later we're here 
And it reframed all of human history in this overwhelming and dramatic way. Can you think of another event that has so redirected the course of history? Another idea. With dates that have been established by radiometric analysis, that's for you, Josh, prophecies from centuries before... Josh is a scientist here in our church with a PhD, and he always wants to know things like that. So for those of you who are guests, centuries before Jesus' birth, these prophecies predicted that birth and his life and his death and his resurrection. This is the one that got me thinking as much or more than any of the others. Because no matter who I talked to, they could try to explain in some way if I came at it from science or philosophy or from theology. But this one, I've never heard a good answer. It's pretty solid and I think somewhat tangible proof for people who want evidence that God exists. These prophecies include specific details that Jesus and his followers couldn't control or manipulate in any way. For example, um, before the Romans ever even invented crucifixion, it was not a thing. Nobody had ever heard of it because it wasn't there. Psalm twenty-two sixteen describes the piercing of Jesus' hands and feet. Isaiah 53 is this powerful prophecy that lays out the story of, of Jesus and the meaning of the resurrection. It goes on and on. Let me get geeky with you here for just a minute. Professor of mathematics, Peter Stoner, gave 600 students a math probability problem that would determine the odds for one person fulfilling just eight of the accepted, verified, agreed upon 61 prophecies. Now, some people say there are 400 or 300. I settled on 133. But let's say there are just 61, you know, prophecies that you can't really argue with. That's, yeah, that's obviously what that's about. And let's say just eight of those. What if one person could fulfill eight of those? What are the odds? What are the odds of just one specific prophecy? Now, when I drive up and down 40 or, and I see the, um, the billboards for the, for the lottery, and I've, n- I've never played the lottery, it, it could be an option or a backup plan for my retirement. I'm just kind of, I don't know, I'm thinking through that. But, you know, and I, and I always wonder, okay, here's this amount, and then how much of that do you get to keep? Do they take like 40%? Or and I start doing, and I'm driving along, and I'm thinking, yeah. And then I think, I don't know what kind of boat I would get. I don't know, maybe. And I'm just, just doing that. But you know what? The odds are incredible, but somebody does it, right? So what are the odds that this could happen? You think it's got to be in some realm, even if it's outlandish, it's got to be possible, right? It's not impossible. 
Let's just take one prophecy like uh, being betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. So the students set about this task and they did their best to estimate the odds for all of the eight prophecies combined. The students calculated the odds against one person fulfilling all of those. And the odds became astronomical. In fact, it's 1 in 10 to the 21st power. That's 10, 21. Now, I know what you're thinking because I kind of thought this too. People can do crazy things with numbers, right? You can take numbers and make that prove just whatever you want. So it's important to note this, that Stoner's work was reviewed by the American Scientific Association, which was not Christian and not sympathetic with you know, his premise. And they said this, The mathematical analysis is based upon principles of probability and are thoroughly sound. And Professor Stoner has applied these principles in a proper and convincing way. Now those prophecies about Messiah were written from completely different times and places by various personalities 500 to 1,000 years before Jesus was ever even born. So there was no opportunity, zero opportunity for conspiracy. Jesus fulfilled about 300 references to 61 specific prophecies of the Messiah. The odds against one person fulfilling that is beyond all mathematical possibility. It simply could never happen, but it did. No matter how much time you allot and... So let me ask this question. Is this evidence, credible evidence of an intelligence that's outside of our time, which goes a long way in confirming the claims of Jesus? Another thought I had was the fact, just the simple historical fact that Jesus was a real person in history who really died. There are lots of manuscripts from multiple sources. There's Jewish historians who describe a man named Jesus who lived and who was executed. There are specific details reported outside of Scripture about his execution And these accounts, which are reliable, even go so far as to report that when he was died, a spear was thrust in his side and that both water and blood flowed from that, which is strong medical evidence of death. And that he really died and wasn't merely unconscious and somehow rallied through crucifixion. You know, the early accounts of the resurrection... And all these prophecies predicting it were somehow, and this is pretty amazing, somehow they were reliably transmitted throughout lots and lots of history. Do you know of any other documents that can claim that? As of a couple of years ago, we have over 66,000 early manuscripts. That's a lot more than Plato or Aristotle or Shakespeare or Descartes. Any, 
many of these have been carbon dated to before Jesus' time on earth and even uh, in the first few centuries after his birth. And these accounts are virtually unaltered in the earliest manuscripts. That's incredible that they sink. It's, it's just it's this pattern, it's profound in, in how it's consistent. Accounts of the resurrection include a lot of inconvenient and embarrassing and unflattering details about the people that were there. If I were going to write this story, I would say, and then Dan, who was the nicest guy of the disciples. You know, even John does put in the disciple whom Jesus loved. <laughs> he gets to write that in. You know, yeah, the, one, you know, the disciple, that would be me. Oh, yeah, I wrote that. But they also included all of these details about the story and about themselves that read so differently than all the other literature of that period or any other time. It's like they made no attempt to write a story or do anything except to just reliably record exactly what had happened, free from any embellishment, with lots of detail. It just doesn't fit any expectations if it were a fabricated account or a story. For instance, in a culture that absolutely would never accept the testimony of women, and it was actually illegal in a court of law, and there's still a lot of issues in the Mideast today, as you are aware of, with, with issues surrounding women's rights. And yet, all through the scriptures, all through the gospels, and even at the very end, women are shown as the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. After Jesus' violent death, his followers were frightened and scattered. They did probably what a lot of people would do, and that's just that they ran and they hid. It was over. He was dead. Then something happened. That grew this strong, bold, daring, confident, reckless movement. These people of belief that resisted even opposition that would put them to death. All of the disciples, except for the possibility of one, died a martyr's death. Other movements with executed leaders would put the next person in line in that spot. You know, if, if Castro dies or if the leader of North Korea dies, then the son or the most charismatic leader after them would step into that place. You've seen that again and again and again. But with Jesus, there's no leader chosen because the early church saw, no, Jesus is still our leader. <laughs> He's still alive. He's alive. They believed this to the point that they were willing to die for it. Listen, nobody dies for a lie. Nobody is willingly beaten and crucified upside down for a hoax. 
No, it's at that moment that you stop and go, wait, wait, fellas, I just, you know what? We made all this up. We've just been kind of trying to get this started, but we've gone too far. Thousands and thousands of Christians gave their lives. What happened? They were entirely nonviolent. They didn't have any political power. Not very many celebrities on board to champion their cause. But they were all so suddenly convinced because of something they saw. What changed them? What convinced them that Jesus was authentic without any doubts? And I think more than just facts, just evidence about our past, that the resurrection creates a connection to God that is perceived by people from all cultures, economic classes and statuses and personalities and backgrounds across 2,000 years of history. That's rationally impossible. But its reach has crossed every kind of border. There are well-known scientists and famous leaders and historians and educators and writers and artists and philosophers and on and on all throughout history who believe in the resurrection. That's unmatched. There's no other single event or piece of information that that many people agree on and have influenced society. Could it be that there is a living God and he's working his purpose in history through the resurrection of his son? Some of the evidence could be established just by purely scientific methods. Radio carbon dating demonstrates that Isaiah 53's prophecy that Jesus would see the light of life and all these other statements were written at least, well, a hundred years before his birth. But the limitations of science and and all of the information you could try to bring into conversations, I, I think is outdone by just simply the, the love and the beauty, the goodness, the relational aspect of where we are as Christians. The empty tomb can't be proven by science, nor can it be disproven. But science does reach a limit. You can't live your life solely on that basis. The entire Christian faith hinges on the physical resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection is God's direct supernatural Action in this specific physical event in history. 1 Corinthians 15, 
Verse 14 and 17 say this. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. In verse 17 it says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Even Paul said, You know what? There's there's not this resurrection mechanism that you can plug in all the information you know or even in your computer you could do this and go okay it's calculated and here's the fact there was a resurrection or there wasn't a resurrection as a singular event it defies all natural laws and we're well outside of the realm of science's ability to referee what happened the question of the resurrection for me It's more like an opportunity to fall in love than it is this scientific experiment. There's evidence. There's lots of evidence. In fact, I came to the place where I realized I was having to jump through more hoops and work harder to try to disprove the resurrection than I was to simply say, this makes sense. I don't understand it, and I get that it's impossible and it's never happened. But it's easier to believe this than it is not to. So for me, it began to move in a different direction. And it's a lot more like falling in love than it is a research project. And the final conclusion came for me, which made total sense, is that the evidence is compelling But it's not definitive that faith in Jesus is reasonable, but it's a choice. It's made with my heart as much as it is my mind. So in a moment, we're going to leave you with this invitation. Will will you too believe? For me, it began on an Easter Sunday night. Are you curious enough? Are you honest enough? Will you respond with trust? In his death, his burial, his resurrection, Jesus conquered the powers of sin and of evil and even of death. You can have peace. And live a life that brings redemption and hope. Jesus has overcome the world. And when we enter into his victory, we become a part of his family. Because the king is one. Do you know this king? Do you know this victory? I totally get I understand that it's hard sometimes to see the victory in our lives. You're surrounded by brokenness or sin or evil and circumstances and your own failures. But the victory that Jesus won 
is the reality. We only see it partly right now. One day we will see the fullness of his victory when he returns. That's our promise and that's our hope. Jesus has overcome. And he's declared victory. And that's where we live within that. So your life, my life, we don't have to be bound by sin and evil anymore. And it doesn't mean that everything's going to be wonderful and you know, you're never going to struggle, you're never going to sin, you're never going to be tempted. No, that's... But it does mean this, that the Holy Spirit is constantly seeking to reveal things in your life that will convict you and draw you to Him and love you so that you know you are never alone. You never face another day by yourself ever again. And all you need to do is to repent of those actions that led you to this place, to ask His forgiveness, and to embrace His victory on the cross and in the tomb. We have been given a new life, a victorious life. We're no longer slaves to sin. We are conquerors in Christ. So today we celebrate and we worship and we sing to Him. And I hope we will do the same tomorrow and the next day. Would you stand? Consider the evidence and consider the claims. Listen to the tug and the pull in your heart toward Christ.